Amen. In Ephesians 1, the Bible says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Amen. Aren't you grateful for the blood of Christ that washes away all our sin? I do want to take a moment and acknowledge over the course of our nation's history, Nearly 1.4 million men and women have given their life on the fields of battle uh, to secure and to defend our freedoms and those liberties that we enjoy uh, so very much. Those freedoms and liberties that allow us to come and worship here and to assemble without fear of intimidation or arrest or physical persecution, uh, to sing the praises of our Lord, to study His Word, and so on this Memorial Day weekend, I want to make sure that we acknowledge and uh, give honor in some small way to, to those 1.4 million men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Amen? And we rejoice in that. Grateful to live in a nation where we enjoy the freedoms we do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, help us not to take it for granted the opportunity you've given us, not only today, but Lord, every Sunday and any other occasion where we can gather and we can freely worship you. We can sing your praises, we can study your word, we can preach your truth. And Heavenly Father, we understand that all over this world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, there are many who will assemble today in fear and with the understanding that they could be arrested or persecuted or even killed for simply calling on the name of Christ. And so, remind us, don't ever let us take this for granted. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to live in these United States of America. And Lord, I do pray for unity. I pray that you would do a work in our nation's life, uh, that you would draw us together around those things that unite us instead of those things that divide us. Lord God, please help us to continue to be a light and a beacon of hope to the world, especially for Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, be glorified, be magnified, be exalted in this place today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. So today we will finish our study of the doctrines that define us, our final installment of this study. Uh, and again, I told you when we began, the, 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 these several weeks would be kind of laying a foundation of what we believe as uh, evangelical Christians. What do we believe the Bible says about the Bible itself? What does it say about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? What does it say about us, humanity? What does it say about salvation? What does it say about eternity? Then today, what does it say about the church? The importance of the church cannot be overstated, cannot be overstated. Um, the body of Christ is incredibly important in the cause of Christ. Let me, let me just remind you of a few things that we read in Scripture as it relates to the church. It's the church that God purchased with the blood of his own son, Acts chapter 20. It's the church that Christ loves, nourishes, and cherishes, that one day he'll present to himself 
blameless in all her glory. Ephesians chapter 5. Building the church is the principal work of Christ in the world today. Matthew 16. The church is God's chief instrument for glorifying God in this world. And the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and the great host of the redeemed to himself, Revelation chapter 5. And so the church is vitally important. It, it is a big deal. And so here's where I want us to begin. If you have your notes there, if you want to follow along, what is the church? Let me share with you the definition, um, a definition that I want to share with you. It'll be on the screen here in front of you. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in this world. Let's read that again. The church is the body of people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in this world. Now, the word that we translate church in our English language comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, and it can be used to have a church at, at any level. It refers to a called out one, a called out people. And that's really what the church is. The church is a body of people. We just saw that in the definition that God has called out from the world. All right? It can refer to a house church in Scripture. It can refer to a church over an entire city. It can refer to a, a church in a region. And it can refer to the universal church, the church as a whole that encompasses uh, many nations, tribes, and languages of people, all right? So here's where I want us to begin. Let's look first at the nature of the church, the nature of the church. And to help us understand that, the Bible uses several different metaphors and or images to describe for us the church. And here's the first one, the family of Christ, the family of Christ. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, read this with me. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. And so look around here today. The, these are your brothers and your sisters, your mothers and your fathers in the faith. We, we are the family of Christ. And I don't know about your family, but I can tell you something about my family, okay? We, we, we're, not, we're an imperfect family. There's a lot of quirkiness and eccentricity in our family, right? We're all a little bit different, aren't we? But that's what makes the family fun, isn't it? We're not alike. If we were all alike, wouldn't it be boring at Thanksgiving and Christmas? It'd be kind of awful, wouldn't it? And so look around. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're different. But hopefully we're different in a good way. Amen. And so the family of Christ, and we see similar language in many other passages of Scripture. Secondly, the bride of Christ. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 32. Read this with me. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, in the context, in Ephesians 5, if you know Ephesians 5, Paul is, a, is teaching us what it means to... For husbands to love their wives, what it means for wives to love their husbands, what it means for parents to love their children, and for children to love their parents. And in that context, as he's talking to us about marriage in, 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 the, in the sense of a husband and wife, he says, listen, I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, read that with me. Paul writes, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy... 
because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Again, we are the bride of Christ. And I want to just speak to that because we live in a, in a strange day, a strange culture where professing Christians will say, listen, I, I love Christ, but the church isn't that big of a deal to me. It's not that important to me. It's not that important that I be a part of the church. Well, well let me just illustrate what that sounds like in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that we can all understand. If you were to come up to me and say, Pastor, Man, I love you, Pastor. I think you're great. I, I, I love being around you. I love hanging out with you. I love spending time with you. I love getting to know you, Pastor. But I don't really care for Melissa. I don't really care for your wife. I'm going to really calmly, after I count to 10, I'm going to calmly say to you, well, thank you so much, but with all due respect, if you don't love my wife, you don't love me. Because we're one. And so when you say to me, I love Christ, but the church isn't a really big deal to me, what you're saying is that you really don't love Christ. For this is the bride of Christ. Amen. Folks, this is a big deal. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ is a big deal. So the next time someone says that to you, when you invite them to church or want them to get plugged in, just use that illustration and, and watch their, their, their facial expression change dramatically. But it's true. Thirdly, we're the body of Christ. The body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verses 12 through 27, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but particularly verse 27, here's what God's Word says. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 15. And he himself gave, or verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Look at this. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. We're going to look at that verse again in just a moment. But here's what I want to focus on for this time. To build up the body of Christ. Maybe you're an arm, maybe you're a leg, maybe you're a toe, maybe you're a finger, maybe you're an ear, maybe you're a nose, whatever it may, it doesn't matter. We're the body of Christ, and we all have an important function. We all have an important role, okay? Now, I'm not a medical doctor, and I'm not in the medical field, okay? But, but I've been told that we're not real certain the purpose of the appendix, right? We don't really know. You can remove your appendix and life goes on. So let, let me just share this with you. Nobody in the church is an appendix, okay? You're all important. We need all of you. We need all of us working together with the gifts God's given us to serve Christ and to serve the body, all right? Because when we all use our gifts and we all serve, guess what? The whole body is healthier and better and stronger and more effective, okay? So... The family of Christ, the, uh, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. That's the nature of the church. Listen next, I want us to look at the leadership of the church. What does the, ch the Bible say about the leadership of the church? Well, there are two offices in the church. Let's look at the first one. That is the office of pastor, okay? Now, in Scripture, in the New Testament, there are a number of synonyms that are used interchangeably. Pastor, bishop, elder, overseer, shepherd, they all refer to the same office. They're all used in a little bit different context, 
um, trying to kind of highlight a specific responsibility. Okay, let me just share with you a couple of passages of Scripture here. These aren't on the screen in front of you, but just listen. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and verse 28, Paul writes, now for, or Mark writes, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Ephesians 4, 11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, not as God, uh, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples. And so we see that language, elder, shepherd, overseer, uh, pastor, different things there. So first of all here, the role of the pastor. What, what is the role of the pastor? If this is an office of the New Testament church, what is the role of the pastor? First, to lead the church. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, look with me here at this verse. The Bible says, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus, and he's teaching Timothy uh, about the role of the pastor, and he says, the elders are to be good leaders. That same principle is implied with the idea of shepherding. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd always leads sheep. A shepherd always goes before sheep. It's a little bit different than a cattle driver. Cattlemen drive their cattle, okay? But a shepherd leads his sheep. Uh, A phrase that I like to refer to it is this way. The, The pastor is the captain of the ship, right? The pastor doesn't lead. He's not an authoritarian. He's not a dictator. He doesn't make decisions unilaterally. But somebody at the end of the day has to captain the ship. Somebody's got to keep the ship going in the right direction. Amen? And that's the role of the pastor as he leads the church. Number two, to teach the Bible. To teach the Bible. Look with me again at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. I want you to see the entirety of this verse. Paul writes, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, read that with me. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. The primary responsibility of the pastor is to preach and teach the word of God. And that is where I spend most of my time during the week is study and in preparation to preach, to teach the Word of God. That's what I've been called to do. That's what the New Testament calls the pastor to do, all right? Next, I want you to just hear the qualifications of the pastor. I've given you the verses uh, that these come from, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1. The Bible lays out for us the qualifications uh, to serve as pastor. Let me, let me just read those to you. The Bible says the pastor is to be blameless and above reproach. That means we ought to be above accusation and allegation. Not overbearing, temperate, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not argumentative, a good reputation among unbelievers, upright, holy, disciplined, the husband of one wife, not greedy for money, a a good manager of his family and his children, not a pursuer of dishonest gain, and finally mature in his faith. And so those are the qualifications of the pastor from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Secondly, let's look at the second office of uh, the New Testament church, and that is the deacon. Okay, The clearest picture of the work of the deacon uh, ministry can be found in Acts chapter 6. This is where we find the first recorded official deacons in the New Testament church, all right? Let's read that together. Look with me on the screen in front of you from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, so in the early days of the church, as the disciples were increasing in number, so the, the church is growing numerically, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the Greek-speaking Jews had a problem with the, the, the Jewish, the Hebrew-speaking uh, uh, widows, that they were being neglected in the ministry of the church. So the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the whole company of the disciples. So they brought the whole church together and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, would be the first martyr of the New Testament church, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of the priests became obedient to faith. And so in this text, we see the role of the deacon, specifically in three ways. Number one, look with me in your notes, care for the physical needs of the congregation. And so some of these widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Remember, the church has a responsibility to look after widows and orphans. In other words, those who are the least fortunate among us, we have a responsibility to make sure they are cared for. And so these Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in this ministry. And so the ministry fell to the body of deacons to meet their physical needs. Number two, The deacons have a responsibility to strive for the unity of the congregation. So we had one group complaining against another group, creating unnecessary division, right? So in an effort uh, to prevent a fraction in the body of Christ, uh, the church elected this body of deacons to make sure that the church remained unified around our mission. And we're going to talk more about that mission here in just a minute. And then thirdly, The role of the deacon is to support the ministry of the pastors. How do we know that? Well, by serving the physical needs of the congregation, the deacons allowed the apostles to focus on meeting the spiritual needs of the body. How's that? Specifically through prayer and the ministry 
of the word. And so we see those three responsibilities of the deacons from Acts chapter 6. Now, like I sh shared with the pastor, uh, the office of the pastor, let me share with you the qualifications of deacons, okay? We're going to be electing deacons shortly, so I think this is a good time. You need to understand what are the biblical qualifications of a deacon. We see this in Acts 6, and we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You ready? Here they are. Full of the Holy Spirit. That means it's evident they have a walk with Christ. Full of wisdom, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulgent in wine, not interested in dishonest gain, steadfast in the faith. They have a clear conscience. They are mature Christians. They are tested and approved servants. In other words, the deacon ministry is not a place where you put, we elect someone to see if they know how to serve Christ. They ought to already be serving Christ, okay? The husband of one wife and individuals who manage their household and children well. So those are the qualifications from Scripture. Now, going back to Acts chapter 6, verse 7, I want you to see the result of when we have the offices and we have everybody functioning according to their role and responsibility. Look at Acts 7, 6, verse 7 again. Listen carefully. So, the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So when the leadership of the body of Christ is aligned scripturally, guess what happens? The gospel goes forward. Lives are transformed. People are saved and redeemed. And so that's why it's important that we understand uh, the leadership of the church. Let's keep going. I want you to see next the ministry of the church. What, what has God called us to do? Why, why do we gather? Why, do, why, why are we organized as a body? Number one, here it is, ministry to God, that is worship. Now, in this context, I'm limiting worship to that act where we engage in singing the praises of God. That, that's one of the great purposes of the church that when we gather, we sing and shout the praises of the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 16. Read that with me. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Watch this. Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. You might ask, why do we spend time every Sunday singing songs, singing the praises of the Lord? Because we're told to. That's an important function of the church. Look with me at Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 20. It says, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't forget this. What is one of the primary things we're going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be singing the praises of our Savior. So this is kind of an introduction of that, right? This is the pregame warm-up for that. We talked about that a little bit last week. And so we gather, we gather here, and part of what we're supposed to do, we're called to do by Scripture, is to sing the praises of the Lord. Secondly, ministry to believers, to nurture. We have a responsibility to nurture one another. We have an obligation to teach and equip believers with the aim of spiritual growth in Christ. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, 
some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So we've, we've been given different gifts. For what reason? You ready? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let's keep going. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing, watch this, into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And so the goal for us as we nurture one another is that we would all be mature in Christ. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, read that with me. For we, we proclaim Him, that is Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul says, I am, I am feverishly working, laboring that you might be mature in Christ. And so that's what we've been called to do, to, to worship the Lord and to nurture the believer. Listen, that's what we're trying to do. That's why we have life groups that meet every Sunday. That's why we're developing a Bible study plan going forward that's going to give you an opportunity to grow in Christ. We're going to introduce to you uh, grow groups uh, next, next year that's going to challenge you and give you another opportunity to grow uh, in Christ. Why? We want, we want all of us, myself included, we want to be mature in Christ. Amen. God's called us to that, to help one another grow in our faith. And then finally, the third ministry we see is ministry to the world. That is evangelism and missions. Just a reminder, the church is to be salt and light in the world. We have this great responsibility to make Christ known among the nations and the people groups of the world. Okay? It starts here. It starts here in our local context, and it goes to the ends of the earth. Let's just go, remind you of these verses of Scripture. Read with me from Matthew 28. Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's rose from the dead, he's getting ready to ascend back to the Father, and here are some of his last words he gives to us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be, not might be, nor should be, but will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that is our local context, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Church, we have this great and awesome responsibility, and we've been equipped by the Lord, we've been empowered from on high to take his gospel to every neighborhood and every home in this community and every people group around the world. Amen. What a great charge. We're going to talk more about this on July 31st when we launch our Vision 2025. We're going to share with you a bold missions thrust that quite honestly, church, won't be accomplished if it's not for God's grace and God's power. But we're going to lay it out there and we're going to trust God to do what he's burdened our heart to do because God's called us to that. He's called us to go to the ends of the earth. He's called us to get on an airplane, a train, or in a car and go. And so we're going to be faithful to do that. So that's the ministry of the church. Next, I want us to finish with the ordinances of the church, the sacraments of the church, if you will. There are two ordinances 
the New Testament church should practice. There are two specific ordinances that we are called to practice. Here's the first, the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're familiar with the term communion, okay? Whichever. Um, what is the Lord's Supper? We celebrate the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ's command to do so. Uh, we see that in Luke 22. We see it in 1 Corinthians 11. We see the practice of it in the other Gospels. On that final night of our Savior's earthly life, as he was gathered in that upper room with his disciples, he instituted this ordinance, the Lord's Supper. But what does it mean? Why is it important? The bread is symbolic of Jesus' body. The wine is symbolic of Jesus' blood. And so when we participate in the observance of the Lord's Supper, when we come together on those occasions, we are identifying with the saving work of Christ. We are testifying that we have placed our faith in Christ and his work of redemption. We are, we are, we are identifying that he is the only way of salvation, that, that through his broken body and his poured out blood, we are reconciled to a holy and righteous God. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to recognize and to observe the Lord's Supper. It just says, when, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Some traditions observe the Lord's Supper every week, some every month, some every quarter, some randomly. The frequency is not important so much as the, that we need to make sure that it is a part of who we are as a church and that we observe it and we understand the significance of it, all right? The second ordinance that we've been called uh, to observe is the ordinance of baptism. The ordinance of baptism. We celebrate baptism, again, like the Lord's Supper, in obedience to Christ's command to do so. Matthew chapter 28, Acts chapter 2. What is baptism? Baptism is a public declaration of a personal faith in Christ. Baptism is a display of hope in the resurrection of the body. The Bible teaches us that baptism should only be performed uh, one time. Uh, the Bible also teaches us by example that baptism always follows a profession of faith. It never precedes it, okay? Uh, let me just share this with you. Maybe some of you come from a tradition where this was common, uh, the practice of infant baptism is not found in Scripture, okay? And I'm not trying to be critical of, of, of another tradition. I'm just sharing with you what God's Word says. The practice of infant baptism is not found in Scripture. It is a historical uh, practice that was likened unto uh, the circumcision of an eight-day-old Jewish boy uh, where you were... Uh, welcomed into the covenant promises of God. And so some Christian traditions began to baptize infants um, following that same pattern, but we don't see that in Scripture. And so uh, that's why we do not practice it uh, in our congregation in this context. The mode of baptism. What, what is the mode, the method of baptism we see in Scripture? Well, the method we see in Scripture is limited to immersion, okay? Every reference in Scripture to baptism we see, the person was put completely under the water and brought back up. The Greek word that we translate baptize is baptizo, and it literally means to, quote, plunge, dip, or immerse. And so that's the practice we see in, in Scripture. 
Um, the practice of sprinkling or pouring water over the head is not found in Scripture. However, with that said, I want to make this statement. There is not universal agreement among evangelicals uh, that immersion is the only valid form of baptism. But it is clearly the form that most fully displays the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you say, so why, why do we practice baptism by immersion? Because it is a, it's the only picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It is a proclamation of the gospel in practice. And so that's why we practice baptism by immersion. Finally, baptism does not contribute to salvation. Uh, there are some traditions that would argue you have to be baptized to be saved. But again, we don't find that in Scripture. Baptism is an act of obedience. It is a public identification with Christ. Is it important? Absolutely it's important. It's important because it's an act of obedience. Christ said for us to be baptized. He modeled baptism. And so we need to follow that model and that example of Christ. All right. So those are the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so church family called Briarwood, that is the foundations, the doctrines that define us. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these few weeks that we have just studied those doctrines that define who we are uh, as followers of Christ. And Lord, I do pray that we would be faithful to each of these doctrines. We'd be faithful to your word. We'd be faithful to you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We'd be faithful to one another. We would encourage one another. We would challenge and equip one another uh, to be your instruments of grace. Perhaps, Father God, there are individuals here today who have never surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ, who, who do not have a personal relationship with your Son. I would ask and pray right now in these moments that you would grab hold of each of their hearts and minds and bring them to saving faith in Christ. Maybe there are some here who have uh, never been baptized and, Lord, they've never publicly identified with Christ as their Savior and Lord. I would ask and pray that in this moment, Lord, you'd grab hold of their heart and they would, they would enter into those waters of baptism boldly and courageously declaring their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe there are some here who uh, have never fully committed themselves to the local body of Christ and, Lord, you're calling them to formally unite with us. I'd ask and pray that you grab hold of their heart as well, that they would bring their gifts and their talents and their service to you and to this body, and they would partner with us as we seek to, to minister to you in worship, to minister to one another through nurturing and, and edifying and encouraging, and that we would minister to the world through evangelism and missions. Lord God, this is your body. This is your bride. It doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to any other body of men. It belongs to you. And so, Lord God, have your way in the life of this fellowship called Briarwood. Use us, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as Lauren and the team lead us in just a time of celebration.